Welcome to the Robert J. Morgan Podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping you believe and cherish the Bible and to learn and love Christian history and hymnody. I'm producer Joshua Rowe, introducing your host, Robert J. Morgan. Rob has written dozens of books with titles like The Red Sea Rules, Ben Sings My Soul, and Reclaiming the Lost Art of Biblical Meditation. Recently, Rob began a video teaching series entitled The 50 Final Events in World History, The Book of Revelation Demystified. You can use this self-paced video study for individual or group use. It includes downloadable visual aids for personal reference or for Bible teachers who want to teach this material to others. Visit robertjmorgan.com courses and use the coupon code podcast at checkout for a special listener's discount. And now here's your host, Robert J. Morgan. Hello there, this is Robert Morgan. I'm back home now. If you've been following my podcast, you know that I took about three weeks and went to my uh, family home in Roan Mountain and with my nephew to Washington and then with my sister and her husband to Myrtle Beach. And I had a wonderful getaway. I did a lot of work because I had to take things in my backpack with me and it was uh, fairly lonely uh, traveling uh, without Katrina. It's the first, um, well, anyway, I'm back now and back at work. And I want to continue on with our study of the book of the Acts of the Apostles. And the question that we're going to deal with today has to do with baptism. So if you are studying along with me, then grab a Bible and turn to Acts chapter 2, where we left off the last time. And while I was in Elizabethton, I thought about the uh, church that I grew up in. It's at the corner of First Avenue or First Street and Academy Avenue. And it was a wonderful church. When I was 11 or 12 or 13 years old, I knew that I needed to be baptized. I told my parents. They had my pastor came. I was very nervous about the whole thing. The thing, really, that I was most nervous about, you know, I was right at that uh, insecure age. And I worried about dressing and undressing with all the other men in the little dressing room behind the baptistry. And that was really a big hindrance to my being baptized. But I finally was persuaded to do so. And I came out of the water and I was so euphoric by the experience that the, um, uh, the shyness issue of getting redressed wasn't really, uh, it didn't bother me at all. I was just euphoric over having been baptized by my pastor, Winford Floyd. Well, this is a very important aspect in the Bible, but it's also sometimes misunderstood. So on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, there are two great questions that the crowd asks. Remember that uh, the Holy Spirit had descended with a great rush, the sound of the roaring a wind and the wonderful ball of fire that separated into the 120 flames licking every one of these members and the phenomena of speaking the gospel in various languages and a great crowd came together. And their first question was in verse number 12, Acts chapter 2, verse 12. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? And Peter began preaching to them and he gave them the gospel. And it says in verse 37, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and to the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? So those are the two questions of Pentecost. 
Those are the two questions that everybody ought to ask. Everybody in our fallen culture right now, everybody in our divided land ought to be looking at the church, the unstoppable momentum of the gospel of Christ in the world. And they ought to be looking at you and me as spirit-filled believers. And they ought to be saying, what does this mean? And what shall we do? And that brings us to our key verse in Acts 2, verse 38. Peter replied, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are afar off, for those whom the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he warned them and pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Then those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Now, Peter's reply in verse 38 has caused perplexity now for 2,000 years. When he said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of, for the forgiveness of sins, was he proclaiming or preaching or advocating what we would call today baptismal regeneration? Was he saying, you must do two things to be saved? You must repent and you must be baptized. And if you do these two things, then you will be saved. Because if he was saying that, then if you simply repent of your sins and receive Jesus Christ as Savior, then you still are not saved until you are baptized. He was preaching baptismal regeneration, and many people have taken it have taken it in that way. So, you know, that's the question before us. So what I, I just want to give two answers to it. And I think, you know, if you'll follow with me, this is a fairly simple thing to understand. Number one, what Peter said that day was absolutely true. He was making a true statement. He was not necessarily making an elaborate theological argument, but he was making a true statement. He was answering their questions. What do I need to, what do we need to do? What are the next steps? And he said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that is a true statement. Any person in this world, you or your loved ones or anyone else, who repents and they are baptized and they are living in the name of Jesus Christ, that person is saved. That is a true statement. For example, if a couple came to me and they said, we want to get married, we're very excited about it, what do we need to do? We can show up at your, at your uh, uh, office next week and we want to be married on, on Monday, what do we need to do? And I'll say, well, just get a marriage license and a couple of rings and we'll exchange vows and exchange rings and you'll be married. Well, that is a true statement. But in making that statement, I am not finally drawing a theological distinction there or a fine legal distinction about what it is that makes them married. The rings really have nothing to do with it. It is the exchanging of their vows, their legal statement to one another. I take you and you take me and we, you know, we agree to it. We make a verbal covenant. We sign 
we sign it, we say this in the presence of at least one witnesses before an officiating uh, minister, and that is what uh, causes them to be married. If they never exchange rings, they are still married, but the exchanging of the rings is the symbol of what they've done. And so when someone says, we want to get married, then we'll get your license and let's say our vows and let's exchange our rings and you'll be married. That is a true statement, but it is not necessarily a legal prescription. So I think here, Peter was telling them the next steps to take. He was not necessarily giving them a legal or theological explanation of soteriology or of salvation. But what he said is true. When I repented, and I have faith in Christ, and I am baptized, and I am living in the name of Christ, I am a saved person. But not necessarily do all of those things theologically intrude upon the legalities of my salvation experience. Now, I will say this. If this were the only verse in the Bible on the subject of salvation, then I would probably be a baptismal regenerationist. But one of the things we have to do is to compare Scripture with Scripture. This is a basic tenor of hermeneutics, of interpreting the Bible. You could go to any one of a number of isolated verses and come away, if you just depend on that one verse, with a theology or a doctrine that may be off a little bit if you don't compare it with other Scriptures and look at that verse within the context and the teaching of the warp and wolf of Scripture. You've got to look at every verse within the context of the whole Bible. For example, let me go with you over. Look at at the book of um, Acts chapter 10. And this also is a time when Peter was able to bring other people to Christ. He had a uh, moment in Acts chapter 2 when he won Jewish people to Christ. And in Acts chapter 10, the opportunity came for him to win Gentile people to Christ. He went to the house of Cornelius, a Roman centurion in the city of uh, Caesarea, and he began sharing the gospel with Cornelius and his family and his friends that were gathered in his house, and look at Acts chapter 10 and verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, that is, giving them the gospel, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The Holy Spirit came upon them. The Holy Spirit came within them. They had that Pentecostal experience. While Peter was preaching, this was a message they were yearning to hear. They wanted to understand it. And Paul was saying, Christ died for your sins, and he rose from the dead. And while he was saying all of this, their hearts said yes, and they believed. And the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they were saved. And they had a Pentecostal experience. And in verse 46, then Peter said, Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, which came first here? Well, it was their believing. And then they were saved. And then they were baptized. So it was the same things that happened, but in a different sequence in which baptism came as the sign and symbol of their salvation event 
in which they received the Holy Spirit, hearing the gospel before they were baptized. Now, let's go over to something else that Peter said. Look at 1 Peter in chapter 1 at the back of the Bible. The book of 1 Peter in chapter 1 and verse, uh, well, we'll begin with verse 3, the body of the epistle. He said, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, here Peter really is giving us a theological lesson in what it means to be saved. But he doesn't say, in this particular case, one word about baptism. And look down at verse 17 of the same chapter. He says, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17, Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live at your time as foreigners here in reverent fear, for you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Jesus, a lamb without blemish or defect. And so he goes ahead, and you can continue reading. He says in verse 23, You have been born again, not with perishable seed, but with imperishable through the living and the enduring word of God. And he talks in this chapter a great deal about salvation without saying anything at all of the issue of baptism being contingent or, or a contingency or a requirement for our salvation. And you can go to Paul's epistles and, of course, his famous book of Romans, that we are saved by grace, and Romans chapter 3, the formula for salvation, or Ephesians chapter 2, that we're not saved by works. And when you look at the totality of Scripture, then when you go back to the book of Acts and chapter 2, and verse 38, then I think you can make a very strong case that Peter here was not giving us a theological uh, algorithm about soteriology, about salvation. He was simply answering the question of these people, what do we do next? What do we do right now? And Peter said, well, you need to believe, repent and believe, and be baptized and be saved. He didn't intend to establish a foundation of theology in a definitive way. He was answering their question, what do we do next? And his statement was absolutely true. So the first thing is that I don't believe that you can make a case when you look at the totality of New Testament teachings that baptism is necessary for salvation. For example, if I ask Christ to be my Savior in my living room, and was wonderfully saved, and drove to the church to be baptized, and was hit by a car and killed before I could get to the baptistry, I think I would go to heaven. I don't think that salvation is dependent upon baptism in that sense. But now, here is the second thing that I want to say, and I want to take a little bit of time with this in the book of Acts, because what I'm going to tell you now goes against the practice of most churches that I know, and looking back over my ministry, I think I would have done things differently had I been more fully aware of this. Baptism is not necessary for salvation, but neither 
Is it optional? And here's the thing. In every case, the people in the New Testament were baptized immediately upon their salvation. I mean, there are no exceptions to this. So going back to Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, Peter said, repent of your sins and receive Christ and be baptized. And it says in verse 41, those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day, it says. They didn't take time for a new members class. They didn't take time to make sure their salvation stood the test of time. They were baptized that day. Now, I also want to say parenthetically that I think I know how they were baptized in my tours to Israel. Uh, and if you want to travel with me to the Holy Land, then just check my website for our next upcoming trip. But you'll see all through Israel, and especially in Jerusalem, the mikvahs. These were the Jewish ceremonial bathing or baptistry uh, tubs um, or baptismal units uh, that the Jews used. I mean, the Jewish people uh, in the first century and in the years leading up to the birth of Christ, they, whenever they wanted to uh, purify themselves ritually, for example, whenever they went to the Temple Mount, then they would have to go down the steps into some water, submerge themselves, and come up the set of other steps to uh, indicate ceremonially that they were cleansed for that religious trip to the temple or for whatever it was they were doing. And all over Israel, there are these, they look like today's baptismal fonts or baptismal units, like the one that I have in the church that I attend. And there, are, there were thousands of them. And it's my opinion because these Jews were used to doing it, every one of them on this day that had been saved, had done this many, many times. They just went back to these mikvahs, and they submerged themselves like they did every time they went up to the temple, but this time it signified something different, that they were buried with Christ in death and raised to walk in newness of life. It could have been that some of them went to the pool of Siloam. There's not a lot of water in Jerusalem. So either they went to the mikvahs, or they went to the Pool of Siloam, or they did both. Maybe some went to Bethesda, um, but there weren't very many places they could be baptized, but there were all of these mikvahs, and somehow they were all baptized on that day immediately. Now let's go to the book of Acts in chapter 8. This is when Philip went to Samaria, and this has to do with the Samarian Pentecost, and look at the book of um, Acts chapter 8, beginning with verse 9. Now, for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city, and he amazed all the people of Samaria. This was a man, Simon, who was a soothsayer, and he boasted that he was someone great, and all of the people, both high and low, gave him attention and exclaimed, this man is rightly called the great power of God. He was an occultish figure. But it says in verse 12 that when the people of Samaria believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized. And Simon himself believed and was baptized. And he followed Philip everywhere 
astonished by the great signs and miracles that he did. These people in Samaria, they heard Peter's message, they believed, and they were immediately baptized, even Simon. Now you say, if you don't wait for a while to see if their conversion is genuine, if you don't wait for a while to take them through a new members class or something, what if they aren't genuinely saved? Or what if they make mistakes? Or what if they prove to be hypocrites? Well, that was true here for Simon. And so in verse 14, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. And when they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given by the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. This is what we call the Samaritan Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit, through the uh, agency of the apostles, came down upon the Samaritans. And Simon said, Well, I'd like to do that. Uh, let me give you some of my money and you give me the ability. He was being very naive here. And Peter answered, May your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. He said, Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he will forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and a captive to sin. Then Simon said, pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you said may happen to me. And I'm sure that Simon did, and it seems that um, Simon Peter did that, and Simon, it seems, got himself straightened out. So here he believed. He was immediately baptized. He made a mess of it all. Peter rebuked him, got him on the right track, and he ended up, we would assume, being a very effective evangelist for the Lord in that area of Samaria. But again, notice here the process. He believed, he was baptized, he was discipled, and sent into service. And in the same chapter, we have the Ethiopian eunuch. And Peter ran up to the chariot and explained Christ to him. And the Ethiopian eunuch believed. And it says in verse 36, as they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, look, here's some water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? And nothing stood in the way of his being baptized. And so they went down into the water and uh, Philip baptized him immediately. The same thing happened to Saul of Tarsus. It says, you know, he was knocked off his donkey or whatever he was riding by the blinding light. And he was taken into um, the city. And he was blind, but Ananias came to him and ministered to him and shared the gospel with him. And it says in verse 18 that as Saul believed, immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he could see again. This was his moment of genuine conversion. And he got up and the first thing, he was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. He was saved, and even though he was starved to death, he wouldn't eat until he had been baptized. Look at chapter 10 and verse number 47. This is the passage that I mentioned before about this is the Samaritan, uh, or rather the uh, Gentile Pentecost, 
uh, in the city of Caesarea. And these friends of Cornelius, they were converted, and immediately, Peter said in verse 47, surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have, so he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. It happened immediately. And go over to chapter 16. I'm just thumbing through the Bible looking at these baptismal uh, examples that we have in this wonderful book. But in the city of Philippi, it says in verse 13, on the Sabbath day, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. And we sit down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer of purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. She listened. The Lord opened her heart. She was saved. She was baptized. And then they went home with her and she entertained them. And later in the chapter, when the jailer is wonderfully saved, he, well, you know the story, maybe you do, uh, how Paul and Silas had been thrown into jail and the earthquake came and the jailer uh, said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And look at this simple answer. No, no baptism here. I mean, Peter, uh, Paul didn't say anything about baptism. He said, believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved and your household. And then he spoke the word of the Lord to him and to the others in his house. They were converted, and at that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds, and immediately he and all of his household were baptized. I mean, here you had some kind of pool or pond, and Paul and Silas, their backs were still open wounds from the beating, and the sailor uh, or the jailer, rather, took uh, some kind of cloth or sponge or something and dipped it in the water and washed their backs and washed their wounds. And then in that same water, they were immediately baptized on that very night before they went home. Look at chapter 18 of the book of Acts. This is when the Apostle Paul goes into the city of Corinth. He evangelizes. It says in verse 7, he left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titus Justius, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. Look at chapter 19, verse 1. This is the story of Paul going to Ephesus. This is the Ephesian Pentecost. It says that Paul went into the interior. He arrived in Ephesus. He found some of the disciples, and he asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not heard that there was a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, What baptism then did you receive? And they said, John's baptism. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, all I'm saying, I don't want to be too dogmatic here, but I also want to be very biblical. I have come to realize that in every case in the New Testament which is recorded, without exception, the moment people receive Christ as Savior, they headed straight towards baptism. 
They didn't wait two weeks. They didn't wait two months. They didn't wait six months. They didn't wait a, wait a year. Uh, immediately, they were baptized. Now, there is nowhere in the Bible where we are told that we have to do it this way. I mean, if a church wants to wait up a full year and have one baptismal Sunday a year to baptize 50 people, well, there is nothing in the Bible that prevents us from doing that. It is just not the pattern that the Bible gives us. I don't have here any dogmatic, laid-out, systematized theology. I just have a consistent biblical pattern. So while I don't want to be overly dogmatic, I also want to be highly biblical. And I think if I were doing it over again, I would just leave the baptistry of our church constantly full. And when people came to Christ, I would baptize them just as quick as I practically could. And then would begin the process of discipleship and the process of Christian growth and the process of leading them into Christian ministry. And the reason is because in every single case in the book of Acts, that is exactly what they did. So when it comes to the question of, is baptism necessary for salvation? Then I think we can say on the basis of the book of Acts, along with the totality of Scripture, it is not necessary for salvation, but neither is it optional for a believer who wants to express his faith in the Lord. And when it comes to baptism, the example consistently is you are saved, you are baptized, you are discipled, you are to put in to the work of the gospel. And if that's the biblical pattern, then I want to be just as biblical as I can. Well, let me know what you think. And I appreciate your listening to this podcast. It's found at robertjmorgan.com slash podcast, along with other resources. I hope that you'll check that out. Check out also my 59-second sermons through the Bible, minute by minute, every day on Facebook and Twitter. Share this weekly Bible study podcast with others. And I am in debt uh, to Joshua Rowe and Clearly Media for producing and directing and distributing it. Thank you for listening, and may God be with you until we meet again.